Welcome all. My name is Joshua Gilliland. I'm one of the founding attorneys of the Legal Geeks. We, the three of us. The four of us. Yeah. We're attorneys and law clerk. And in 2012, I started the Legal Geeks with Jessica Meterson. We are practicing attorneys and we're pop culture fans. So because of the abuse we endured in law school, it's hard for us to watch anything and not legally analyze it. Yeah, we can't watch crime procedural dramas. No, <laughs> no, and, and lawyer TV shows, uh-uh, oh, no. no, super painful. But oh, Jessica and I started tweeting about an uh, a case involving electronic discovery that had a cowboy reference in it. I then did a blog post on my other blog, Bowtie Law, and had lots of cowboy references. And naturally, Blazing Saddles was in that list. We interact and go like, hey, we, we enjoy the classics like Young Frankenstein and Star Trek and Star Wars. So why don't we, why don't we do this? So we then launched the blog in July 2012. And we've just passed our 10-year anniversary. We are glad to be here. So we have a blog, we have a podcast, we do both. And because it's important to cover both mediums, uh, I'm gonna brave in, venture into the brave new world of TikTok because it's, it's a scary, <laughs> weird place. And who doesn't love talking about holiday specials? You know, I'll, I will offer this. This morning I watched the Guardians of the Galaxy holiday special on Disney Plus. It's adorable. It's amazing. It's everything good about the first Guardians of the Galaxy movie, and it highlights why James Gunn should be in charge of a studio now. So it's highly recommend checking that out. It's a wonderful, wonderful show. And it's great to see others here. So out of curiosity, any lawyers besides the three of us? Oh, hey! Yay! <laughs> I'm sorry we don't have CLE credit for this one. Sometimes we do. Yes, yeah, sometimes we do. Uh, but. Let's talk about the big legal issue with Santa Claus is entering houses. Every on, house. Every house. Every house all over the world. On Christmas Eve. Is that trespassing? And I'll kick this off with this issue that let's understand what trespassing is just in California. Because if we did all 50 states, every US territory, and then started venturing into uh, other countries, that, that could get a little crazy. But every person who enters or remains in a non-commercial dwelling, house, apartment, or other residential place without the consent of the owner is trespassing. So coming down your chimney, entering your house, that's trespassing. But the key word here is consent. Does leaving milk and cookies out constitute consent, if not an outright invitation? You are welcome here. We are fulfilling the social contract of leaving milk and cookies out and being good all year in order for you to leave us gifts. Either one of you care to share on that? Is, who, oh, so. Uh, Nari, Angela? Uh, sure, so the question is, was Santa invited into the home? Um, could you have had a child who had written to Santa asking Santa to come and leave them presents? Uh, 
did you go to the mall? Uh, and you have a child ask Santa to please come and, and bring them presents. Uh, did you hang your stockings on the chimney with care in hopes that St. Nick would soon be there? Those all probably constitute consent and an invite for Santa to come down your chimney and leave you presents. So Santa is probably not trespassing, uh, provided that there was some ask by most likely a child uh, for him to come and leave the presents. Yeah, I'll, I'll just contribute the added thought that like while leaving milk and cookies is not the same as like a written sign that says this person may enter under these conditions and at this time, you know, I, I, I do think there would be an argument in, in a certain cultural context that would be have a universal meaning that would be understood this particular person on this particular day may enter these premises. Oh, do, should, we, should we do a quick question? Yeah, so Spider-Man, please, what's your question? So the question is, what is the child who's under 18, what effect does that have of, of writing a letter or, or, ask, or to invite in? That's a little problematic because they don't necessarily have the capacity to give consent. However, if a letter is written with a parent's help or the parent took the child to see Santa at the mall, there is a tacit consent by the parent at that point in time that would cross into the child's acting within the legal authority of the parent at that point in time, like sending the child to go to the store to buy some milk. They or can do that. bake the cookies. Or bake the cookies. <clears throat> yeah, I think those are all the arguments that Santa's defense lawyer would make yes. if he were ever dragged into court on an accusation of trespassing. That was an excellent question. Yes. Now let's flip this to How the Grinch Stole Christmas. And one of the big issues in How the Grinch Stole Christmas is false impersonation. The Grinch dresses in Santa's attire and dilutes his brand by going out to do something nefarious. And Angela, could, could you share your thoughts on the false impersonation of the Grinch? Right, so in California, it is illegal to falsely impersonate uh, another person. We also have a thing called the right to publicity, and every person who falsely impersonates another in his or her private or official capacity, which Santa would probably be in his official capacity, and does it in that assumed character, does any of the following is subject uh, to punishment. So clearly, the Grinch is dressed as Santa, has something that resembles a reindeer uh, to indicate that he is, you know, in a sled with reindeer as Santa. He's got the bag of Santa. Um, he clearly is impersonating Santa in his official capacity and could be punished under California Penal Code 529. Now let's talk about grand theft. <clears throat> Nari, did the Grinch commit grand theft? Under California state law, uh, yes. So <laughs> <laughs> what basically is the difference between what, uh, grand theft and like for y p people of a certain age in the room, you'll be familiar, for example, with the term grand theft auto. <laughs> um, what, what grand theft means is essentially it's theft, but above a certain monetary value. Um, and in this case, the Grinch is stealing a lot. Um, in, you know, uh, the, the, the exact number of what qualifies as grand theft versus petty theft varies from state to state. But in this case, 
you're taking an entire town and taking not only their Christmas presents, but in many circumstances, their trees. Yep. Lights, uh, decorations. Yeah. Um, I, I really have a hard time Food. seeing a defense here that the Grinch did not steal enough value to get above the grand theft line, and certainly in California, but probably any jurisdiction, uh, at least in the United States. Um, oh, sorry, did you have a question? Oh. Well, so, so even if it is homemade, um, it, it doesn't necessarily make a difference for what we think of as theft. So property can be any kind of property, even if it's not property that I intended necessarily to sell on the open market. Um, but presumably when you're trying to figure out whether or not, uh, like what the value of something is because you're determining a penalty or because you're determining whether it's petty or grand theft, um, you would try, you would probably have experts come in actually, and you'd have the dueling experts and the Grinch would hire an expert to come in and, and say like, oh, but all of this stuff was only worth about <laughs> a penny for item. <laughs> um, but you would have someone from the other side, uh, from the prosecution, to bring in an expert and say, well, I looked at, I tabulated, here are all the receipts, and uh, the total value of this was in excess of $20,000 or something like that. So you, you would have to value it um, uh, if it's not something that is like really easily valuable because it's something that is on the open market. Um, but yes, you, so you, yeah, you would have to determine the actual value of, uh, of a lot of these things. So let's talk about the greatest, oh yes, So that's a really good question. Um, uh, it, I, I think so, it depends on if we're talking about civil versus criminal. And if we're talking about criminal, I think the prosecutor would argue this was all part of the same act. Um, he performed it all in the same night. Uh, and so that would be what the prosecutor would say. If it were civil and all that were happening, and by civil I mean there's no jail time on the table, there's no prosecutor involved. It would just be me having had my Christmas decorations and presents stolen by the Grinch, um, taking the Grinch to court by serving him with a complaint and saying, you owe me the value of what you stole from me. In that circumstance, you would, yes, be limited to just what was stolen from your own premises. Uh, so that's an excellent question. Yes. And, and considering that I believe the limit for grand theft is $950 is where it becomes grand theft. Once you add in the Christmas tree and all the presents and all the food, any prosecutor worth their salt will have made that into $950. And really quick, before we move on to Miracle on 34th Street, I just wanted to put this in the context of what we had just been talking about with Santa Claus and entering with consent, making it not trespass. Um, uh, one of the things about fraud is that besides that it is typically a crime in and of itself, especially if you are using it to get pecuniary gain, in this case the Grinch is using it to gain access to people's homes to steal from them, um, it also typically has the effect of negating consent. Um, so in, in the instance in which someone has, I, I mean we can imagine this gaining consent to this building um, because you, you know, are, have a fraudulent badge or something like that. Um, it would negate the uh, permission that you would have to come onto the premises and proprietors here could probably accost you and someone could accuse you of trespassing. <laughs> so similarly, the, the Grinch in this case uh, does not have permission by virtue of the fraud. So let's get into the greatest holiday courtroom drama ever made. And that is the original Miracle on 34th Street. So we see Saint Nick put into involuntary confinement. And Angela, can you help us understand the plethora of issues on this, this very evil bureaucrat from the department store who decides the to get. Psychologist. Yes. Who uh, is just kind of a bitter old man um, who has informed one of Chris Kringle's friends that he has a guilt complex and hates his father. 
and this upsets Chris greatly. Alfred is a young 17-year-old who likes to dress up as Santa. He likes the joy that it brings giving presents, and this fraud of a psychologist is trying to tell him that he's got problems. So Chris Crinkle goes to confront the psychologist, and they get into an argument, and Chris Kringle hits him over the head with his umbrella. Now, earlier in the movie, this psychologist uh, had told um, the Macy's staff that Chris was delusional and that he would, if his delusion was confronted, he would become violent. And the doctor at the old person's home where Chris was living said, no, he's never going to become violent. So uh, Mr. Sawyer claims this proves he's violent, he's insane, he needs to be committed. So, which raises the issue of, is he a danger to others? So now this movie was made in 1947, and at that time the uh, standards for involuntary commitment were a lot lower than they are today. So, um, however, today a person can be held for 72 hours under what's called a 5150 if they are a danger to themselves or others. And that is based typically on uh, law enforcement's uh, view of a person when they come to a scene. Uh, and under a 5150, they are held for 72 hours for assessment and evaluation, crisis intervention, or placement, um, and can be held further if necessary, but the 5150 allows them. Now, it has to be a danger to themselves or others. So which then gets into uh, the specific facts for probable cause, uh, you have to be able to well define it. And you need a medical professional to be able to document that and explain it. You can't just say like, yeah, they're crazy. It's like, mm, that's your opinion. So let's get to the competency hearing, which is again, the greatest, greatest issues and so lawyers have something called the duty of loyalty. People trust lawyers to help them. No one goes to a lawyer because they want someone on the bowling team. They come to us because a bad thing has happened and they need help. The, our hero lawyer, Fred Gailey, Sawyer tries to buy him off. It's like, hey, do you really want to represent this guy? And, and the lawyer's like, go away. No, that's not how this ends. He did what the lawyer is supposed to do. Yeah. <laughs> the lawyer's law firm is not doing what they're supposed to do. And they're like, drop this guy, drop him now. And so the hero lawyer quits the law firm. It's like, no, I'm doing this on my own. Now, there are a whole bunch of issues that you have to follow if you are starting your own law firm. And we'll just go with in 1947, he did those super quickly. But <laughs> there, there's this beautiful passage in the Business and Professions Code uh, 6068 subsection H. And I love this quote. Never to reject for any consideration personal to himself or herself the cause of the defenseless or the oppressed. Somebody who's been carted off to an insane asylum falls into that category of the defenseless or the oppressed. But Josh, what if uh, the lawyer wasn't willing to do this pro bono 
and Chris Kringle wasn't willing to pay. Could the lawyer then so that withdraw? There, there are times to withdraw because you, it's like Mr. Green is not there, and that's one of the buzzwords that lawyers have used in court with funding. Uh, there are nonprofits that can help with funding in those situations because there are people who actually care about access to justice. Uh, this also raises the issue of, uh, this sounds like a f it would qualify as a criminal proceeding and thus you would have the right to counsel, even though this is before Gideon, the, the, the Supreme Court case that said you get a right to an attorney in all criminal cases. Prior to that, it was really happenstance with, yes, at a felony at the federal level, states were scattershot, and there's a bunch of cases in the 1960s that give us the right to trial, or the right to counsel under the Sixth Amendment. There's a movement right now called Civil Gideon, because in immigration court, you don't get defense counsel assigned to you. So we have refugee children who are four or five who are appearing before United States immigration judges without a lawyer. So you have the United States government wanting to deport them and you have the hope that this immigration judge is going to talk to a four-year-old and make sure that their rights are vindicated. There's a movement to have a civil Gideon type requirement to make sure that doesn't happen anymore. So. And actually, in, in Miracle on 34th Street, there, there is a judicial issue as well in terms of judicial ethics. The judge in the case had a political consultant, and the judge was up for re-election. And the political consultant is in the chamber saying, you've got all these kids out there, and if you declare Santa Claus insane, there's only two people who are going to vote for you, you and the prosecutor. And the judge kind of walks out and he looks back at the guy and says, no, the prosecutor's a Republican. Because <laughs> in New York, they vote, it's a part, judges are partisan, they aren't in California. Um, but it was interesting because there are judicial ethics that judges have to follow similar to what lawyers have to, and one of them is a judge may not recuse themselves from a case simply because they don't like it, or because it is difficult or they're afraid of the publicity nor can a judge make a ruling, and there's a, the, the canon is very specific, the ruling must be made on the law and the facts without any regard whatsoever to a judge's personal opinion, public opinion, or criticism. So, and in this case, the judge did his duty. He did not recuse himself as much as he was uh, worried about losing his job. Or the fact that his wife was ready to have him sleep on the couch. Yes. And so his like, grandkids wouldn't uh, hug him or <laughs> yeah. yeah, so the, the prosecutor and the judge in this are, are in a world of hurt because of what happens. So part of a lawyer's ethical duty is to be truthful to the court. And Nari, you've clerked for a federal judge. You, the, the hero lawyer in this has to walk a fine line in representing 
is this actually Santa Claus? Because you can't lie or make stuff up. Yes, uh, and really quick, just because at least when we started, only one hand went up for, for I'm a lawyer. I just want to give a quick, just a little bit of context, which is um, lawyers, like certain professions, like doctors, have, a, have essentially extra ethical requirements. They're imposed by the professional organization, which is quasi-governmental. So in this case, it would be the State Bar Association. Yep. Um, and if you violate one of those rules, one of those ethical rules, like a doctor, you can lose your license to practice. And for a lawyer, you can also lose the ability to practice in that jurisdiction. Um, so this this is serious stuff. Uh, and I also want to, to note that while you know lawyers have a bad rap, there there are some bad lawyers out there. Um, you, they are all supposed to be following the same set of rules. Um, and so you know one of those is that uh, fundamentally in every state in the union, a lawyer is considered an officer of the court, even though we also zealously represent our clients. Um, and that is another ethical obligation that we were talking about with the duty of loyalty and other things. Um, so it can sometimes create tension. <laughs> and uh, so well, on the one hand, as an officer of the court, um, you are ethically obligated to never mislead um, or outright lie or say a falsehood to the court. Um, but on the other hand, you also do need to zealously represent your client, put their best case forward. Um, and that can create tension, you know, in, in uh, I think the most sort of easy examples of this would be like in a criminal context, your client comes to you and says, uh, you know, having been charged with assault, yes, I definitely punched that guy. <laughs> um, you know, what do you do as an ethical defense attorney? Well, the answer is not, uh, in, in every state bar in the land, the answer is not, therefore I don't represent you. Um, the answer is that you have to uh, represent their rights, make sure that the prosecutor has proved every element of the crime that they are charged with. Um, but you do not then uh, assert to the judge that I will prove that my client did not per, uh, punch that person <laughs> if you know, in fact, um, or, or believe you know, uh, uh, yourself that they, in fact, did. Um, but, but to thread that needle here, uh, there's a little, the, the distinction is essentially that the government in every case when they bring a criminal prosecution or a civil plaintiff in any case where they bring uh, a complaint um, has to prove certain facts in order to establish that the person should go to jail for this crime or that this person owes me money. Um, and it's always the, uh, in, in the government's case for a criminal trial, it is always the government's burden. And in this case, since the government is moving um, to put this person, to put Chris Kringle um, uh, into uh, involuntary confinement uh, for mental health issues, they have the burden to prove every element of the statute that was taught, the, the, was it 5150, thank you. Um, and one of those is, as has been pointed out here, danger to others. Um, so there are ways that ethically, um, Chris Kringle's defense lawyer here uh, could very much represent his client and, and, and win this case. In fact, I would argue that when the government rests its case in this trial, uh, the defense has won and they should just have moved for a directed verdict. Because the government in this movie, if anyone wants to like, if you remember the trial, if you want to go back and watch it, uh, the, the district attorney in this movie had only put on evidence um, that Chris Kringle was delusional, that he believed he was in fact Santa Claus, um, but had not put on any evidence of danger, to, despite the fact that we know from watching the movie that he had bopped somebody on the head with his, with his umbrella. Um, so in that circumstance, I actually think uh, there is a potential ethical issue with our hero lawyer. Um, having said to the court, I will prove that this man is in fact Santa Claus, and it's because just uh, you know subjectively he knows, um, given the other facts that were laid out earlier in the movie, um, that he's you know had conversations presumably with his doctor, Chris Kringle's doctor at the uh, elderly facility, um, that that he is not. 
in fact, actually Santa Claus. <laughs> and think of the, the climax of the film with how they prove Santa is real. It's because of mail that, the, once again, the post office is the hero in the story. Yep. Uh, lawyers not being truthful has also been in the news recently. So, Nari, is there an issue with the court ruling on the validity of Santa Claus based upon the U.S. mail? So, essentially, at a number of junctures in this movie, a U.S. court, a state court in New York, is asked to rule on the existence of Santa Claus. Um, there is actually a potential legal problem with that, and it's because another name for Santa Claus is Saint Nicholas. <laughs> uh, and uh, in general, um, uh, because of a Supreme Court precedent that goes back to 1940, um, courts are not, or the government, has no business uh, uh, adjudicating or determining or proclaiming on the, the uh, truth or falsehood or sincerity of religious beliefs. Um, and uh, since I think we are allowed to maybe wax a tiny bit poetic, I will just say, so this case was Cantwell v. Connecticut. Um, it involved uh, a group of Jehovah's Witnesses who were pamphleting uh, in Connecticut uh, and were, were essentially charged with pamphleting or soliciting without a permit. However, the statute in question um, permitted people to permit uh, or to, to, to solicit if they had a permit or if it was a bona fide religious belief. Uh, and the state of Connecticut, which at the time was majority Catholic uh, and really didn't like Jehovah's Witnesses, actually a lot of states really didn't like Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, determined that that was not a bona fide religious belief and so therefore they could charge them with this, uh, with this offense. Um, and the Supreme Court decided that was not okay under the First Amendment. Um, uh, and I just wanna note that like Jehovah's Witnesses and their unwillingness to go with the flow are responsible for a lot of these <laughs> Supreme Court precedents. I have a very special place in my heart for Jehovah's Witnesses as a result. Um, but because of this, you actually get some really fun things. Has anyone ever heard of the Church of the Giant uh, Flying Spaghetti Monster? Yeah, so this Supreme Court precedent and this basic legal principle under the First Amendment is actually why you have the Church of the Giant Flying Spaghetti Monster because the court will not interrogate the sincerity of even what is clearly a facetious religious belief. Um, and it's why you get to have the, the apostafarians, um, as, as they are sometimes called, uh, show up and insist that they get to give their invocation at City Hall as well. <laughs> um, so in this case, asking the court to adjudicate the existence of a arguably religious figure uh, would violate the, the First Amendment. Well, let's talk about nasal discrimination. <laughs> so, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer is persecuted by all those sinister reindeer who don't let him play. His parents, you know, want him to wear a false nose, de denying who he is. And Santa is blind to the plight of Rudolph. Angie, if you were representing Rudolph, do you think Rudolph could br successfully bring a claim for being discriminated against because of his nose? So the color of your nose is not a protected class. Um, uh, so could an employer, if Santa was an employer, discriminate against Rudolph because of the color of his nose? Yes, he could. However, I would look at this slightly differently and say that Rudolph is not being given a free and fair public education. He did not get to go play the reindeer games. 
Santa Claus basically runs a school to train the reindeer. And Rudolph was denied the right to an education in how to be a reindeer. Yes. We were about to get there. Yes. So, you know, you cannot discriminate against a child because of how they look or any disability they have. They are, they are entitled to a, a public education with the accommodations and services that they need. Now, if having a red nose is a disability, then, yes, in fact, Rudolph is being discriminated against under the ADA. You cannot discriminate against somebody for a disability. If an accommodation could be made, uh, that has to be given. And arguably it's genetic, and so that would be under the ADA as well. So there is a path for success because Santa arguably is an employer or it's really evil slavery with the elves. So let's hope he's an employer. So, yes. So to repeat for the recording, uh, the question effectively is one of indentured servitude, of you know forcing Rudolph to work under any foul weather condition, and it's you know like ships have running lights, uh, cars have fog lights, and is he being demoted to fog light? And I'm happy to talk. You about go that. for it. So first of all, I do want to mention. I think it was, you had it started with a very astute observation that we don't know what the contract is, is here, um, and you know it is conceivable that someone could hire an employee specifically to help out on foul weather nights. They probably you might actually need more people to like run a ship in foul weather or something mm -hmm. like that. So assuming the problem isn't contractual, um, I think uh, you were onto something here, uh, and you were onto something here with it could be considered a constructive demotion. So assuming the contract was not specifically that you come in and work on, on foggy nights, um, but instead was just you come in and work, and instead Rudolph is only getting called in to work on the least desirable position, head of the, the team on the least desirable night, the foggy night. Um, th there's a potential argument um, that it would be a constructive demotion, or if Rudolph, for example, quits as a result because Rudolph considers this working condition to be intolerable, um, you could argue for constructive uh, uh, firing, essentially. And what you would have to show, it, I, I'm not saying Rudolph definitely wins, but what you would have to show if you were Rudolph and Rudolph's lawyer is you would have to show that uh, this, was, this was not you know, fundamentally part of the contract, um, that the employer did not have a valid reason um, to reposition Rudolph in this particular way, um, and that an, a reasonable employee would have considered this to be a demotion um, or would have considered such conditions to be intolerable. So it's, it's, it's a bit of an objective standard. Um, so even like maybe Rudolph has, I don't know, a fog, like a particular detest, uh, detestment of the fog, but. Uh, on the weather front, I will, 
highlight military service. And in the Coast Guard, there's the motto of, uh, you have to go out, you don't have to come back. And so there are some jobs where you recognize, like being a firefighter, that it's an inherently dangerous job. So if Rudolph's employment contract is for, this is what you do, dude, like you're, you're the foul weather system here, this is why we need you, he can't just, you know, throw in the towel. But so I, I do think this was a really good question because it'd be kind of like you are hired by the fire department and they normally take turns taking out the trash, but you're, you're just the one who's always taking out the well, that's trash. Called, that's called a probie. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yes. Yes. So is the glowing nose consi considered a weapon? I don't think it's a weapon system. I think it would be a navigation system. Similar. I mean, it depends on how intense that is. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I lasers can blind people. But. It, could, it could be. I'm like, if they do interrogations, it could get weird. But yes. Yes. So now this is this is how lawyers think. So why don't we press on because there are some other things to talk about here, and we do want. Uh, oh you, yes. Sorry, can you speak up just a little bit? So it it's broadly written. And because we don't want people to get discriminated against, and they tried to be forward-looking. How would you? How would that get designated that? I would look at it. I would go with genetic. So, but others. I'm, this is not my area of the law. I yeah, I, I don't have the statute handy, but it does provide a relatively general definition. It's something to the effect of it is a physical condition um, that causes uh, difficulty in performing certain tasks and things like that. Um, and then there are rules for providing reasonable accommodations for those, for employers and things like that. Um, but in general, it's written in the general definition as opposed to providing a list, precisely because there are, uh, we essentially discover new uh, conditions or conditions that had existed, but we discover essentially that they are, are, are disabilities for these purposes. For example, um, I think uh, there, there was a lot of uh, judicial back and forth thing about whether or not being a cancer survivor qualified, because um, a lot of employers didn't want to take on somebody who had been a cancer survivor because they might have cancer again, and then it would be very costly to provide them with uh, disability and other things that they would be entitled to. Mental uh, health was also something yeah. that was not necessarily considered a disability, and over the years it has now fallen into but, the ADA. Exactly, and by virtue of giving it sort of a descriptive general definition instead, it gives the opportunity for people to bring these arguments for the first time in a court, even though a mental disability or being a cancer survivor had never previously been found to be a disability. And on our blog, there's a general discussion about the ADA about discriminating against XBs in Star Trek Picard. <laughs> uh, on, it's entitled On the Basis of XB. And there's a recent one on Werewolf by Night about the Man-Thing and that the Man-Thing is hunted on the basis of his disability and that he's a walking swamp. So, 
So let's talk about Santa Claus is coming to town. And we have the Burgermeister Meister Burger enact a law because he steps on a toy that says toys are uh, hereby declared illegal, immoral, unlawful, and anyone with a toy in his possession will be placed under arrest and thrown in the dungeon. So if you haven't seen this in a while, uh, the, the Burgermeister Meister Burger looks like the illegitimate love child of Brezhnev and Khrushchev and is in a very grave Soviet-looking totalitarian place. So it's everything that you remember about the Cold War in the 60s and 50s of not okay and coming out with, with laws that are you know, self-defining, illegal, immoral, unlawful. Well, illegal is unlawful. So you're saying they're immoral? So this is a blanket law on all toys. Well, what do we have in the United States that we can at least try to understand this? This type of law would be uh, analyzed uh, under rational basis. You have to explain some hook that the state has a reason to say, we don't want any toys anymore. Well, we've prohibited water ball yo-yos because they could be frozen and then turned into a deadly weapon and kill people. So specific law that said, yeah, we don't want those anymore. You also have laws prohibiting toy guns because kids got shot because they had guns that looked real. You can't buy a replica Star Wars blaster and have it look real because we don't want anyone getting shot. I remember when laser tag was popular when I was a child in the mid 80s and a kid got shot. So we banned those type of toys, so that's why they're all white and orange and don't look or like. The orange plastic on the end of them, even though. Yeah, yeah. So if, if in California, if you have a toy gun, it has to have the orange plastic, on yeah. the, even though kids still get shot yeah. with those. Yeah. But again, we enacted that. So would a complete and total prohibition on toys be constitutional? I'm going to go with no. It'd be one thing if it. Um, Disagree. A blanket. <laughs> so, 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 so. I am, and it's because rational. So, for people, for for the everyone except you in the room who has not heard about, perhaps it's called the tears of scrutiny. So, in general, if something um, you know is found to clearly violate a written provision of the Constitution, for example, the First Amendment, Congress should make the law infringing yeah. uh, uh, free speech, uh, or Fourteenth Amendment, it's discriminated against a, uh, a suspect class. Um, uh, in those circumstances, you get very serious, uh, courts will look at it really closely, and it's what we call strict scrutiny review. There's also intermediate review for gender discrimination, which is, eh, yeah, with bite. But so rational basis is what happens when there isn't a specific constitutional hook um, under which you're saying this specific provision guarantees me this right or prohibits the government from doing this thing, and so therefore I should get to do it. And rational basis is uh, sometimes referred to among constitutional lawyers as government wins. Um, what it basically means is that uh, as long as the government can present a set of facts, and the courts typically don't really interrogate whether or not that set of facts is in fact true, <laughs> um, in which a value that the government is putting forward that this law would further is rationally linked to this 
set of facts that they assert to be true, they will typically win. Um, and so uh, a lot of um, people growing up uh, in especially the uh, aughts or lawyers who came of age around 2013, for example, um, might be familiar with a rational basis instead having a little bit more teeth to it. Um, but that's because for a long stretch of time, the Supreme Court was unable to agree to apply a higher standard of scrutiny to discrimination against people on the basis of sexuality. And so therefore um, struck down a whole bunch of laws that were uh, prohibiting, for example, gay people from marrying ostensibly under rational basis, um, uh, but it was, a it was treating it in a very different way. Uh, so a people like myself who, who grew up during that time and were studying law during that time um, sometimes have a different association with it, but typically it means the government wins. Um, and so in this case, I could imagine the Burgermeister putting forward that uh, perhaps children who ha are having toys around results in lower SAT scores than children who have no toys. And so therefore, it is in the interest of education to prohibit all toys within this town. Yeah, but that's not what he says. He says toys are immoral. Therefore, what's the, what's the reasonable relationship between the public welfare and the act pre well, prescribed except, of... Except the courts do legislate and society does legislate morality. We do, yeah, and the we government do. is allowed to make its yeah. own statements about what it believes to be... But a total ban? But the government doesn't have to so, give its real reason. I know, it just it, has to give I know, A total and, ban. Before I take questions, I just want to clarify here. <laughs> A total, no yeah, more video games. I'm not games. suggesting that this is a good law or that it sh there's no remedy, there's, there's no fixing it. It's just that um, the law, or the remedy is not always I go to court because I have a constitutional right to have a toy. You have no constitutional right, right to have toys. Although I will note that it's possible mm. that the state constitution mm -hmm. <laughs> includes there you go. something oh. like that. But okay, uh, we have a couple right. questions. How, how would you define a toy? How, how would they? So, yeah, so, oh, sorry. Vagueness, <laughs> yes. Yeah, and if you own it, you get thrown in the dungeon. Notice no time period. Okay, well that no, there are problems with that. <laughs> I, I was simply discussing the question of could and a city ban toys. <laughs> so, yes. I think a specific toy. Yes. Yep. Homemade. Yeah. <laughs> is it sharp? Does well, it have a piece that launches off? The Burgermeister did fall. He did. Yeah, he stepped. It, it, was, it was a ducky. It was a ducky. He so, slipped on the ducky. That, that is clearly a public safety hazard. So, and then we need to get to it's a wonderful life. Yes. So, <laughs> uh, I d was, uh, and then back to you. But uh, can we can we do uh, uh, data first, please?
but it would be great I really if the like law said. I how you guys are thinking. <laughs> yeah, and this is how lawyers think. So let's get to uh, one of the greatest sci-fi movies ever made. It's a Wonderful Life, because you get to see an alternate reality with angels. So, Nari, Mr. Potter kept the eight thousand dollars, which in today's money is. Uh, $132,449.78. Yes. That well, yes. more so, than nine. So this is what we're going to discuss very quickly. Yeah. So um, uh, this movie takes place in New York. So we're looking at this specifically under New York law. Um, New York statute does um, does define larceny to include the keeping of lost property, and they define that as the prop property that one knows to be lost, or even worse, knows uh, to be lost and knows who it belongs to. Um, in this case, there really isn't an argument, at least not as presented by the movie. Presumably, Mr. Potter will hire a very expensive defense lawyer, but um, uh, in which Mr. Potter knew that this was money that had been left by, I think it's Uncle Barnaby, right? Billy. Billy, thank you. Uncle, Uncle Billy. Billy. Um, uh, knows specifically who, who this was left by, that it is lost property, and does not return it. Um, now, so uh, New York does define uh, 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 this as, as theft. This would undoubtedly be grand theft. I want to note additionally that um, not every state does this, but New York actually does also create an affirmative obligation under its statute to return lost property, either to a police station, um, to the person if you know who lost it, um, or in certain circumstances to the proprietor of the building in which you find it. Um, and so at, this was kind of the certainly the lesser offense between this and grand theft, um, but that would be punishable by up to a $100 fine as well. And, and Mr. Potter has the audacity to swear out a warrant for George's arrest because of what's happening at the Bailey Building and Loan. So he's, he's a very bad man. Uh, and, uh, Which raises the structure of justice problem. Yeah, so there's, you know, when you get married, if on day one of the marriage, your husband's business is having a run on the bank and you put up two grand in order to save the business. Which again is a lot, in today's day is a lot. A lot of money in the, during the Great Depression, they should have put a pause and not commingled the money. They should have at least written on a napkin, this is a loan to the Bailey Building and Loan. They don't quite have the time to do that. If I were a lawyer in 1931, I would have jumped in and helped with that. Yeah, so to, to clarify why this is important, um, so typically when you create uh, certain types of businesses, for example, limited liability mm. businesses, what you're doing is you're essentially creating, um, we, we call it like a, a, what is it, a corporate veil, a barrier yeah. between your own personal assets, like the house that you own um, or the car that you have, um, and the, the assets that are attributable to the business. This is important, um, and it's actually, I think, I think you know, really great because it means that somebody can start a small business, and if it goes south, you know, it sucks, they lost their business, but they're not financially Personally ruined liable. Yeah, in every possible way. Um, it means that people can take risks and go out and because they think they have a good business idea, even if a lot of us, of course, don't. Um, uh, so in this case, though, what happens is, is you really do, if you've created a limited liability uh, company, 
you have to treat it like it's a separate entity. And any time that you treat it like it's actually not a separate entity, in this case they're using their personal funds to pay out the withdrawals, um, that can be used as evidence later by someone who is trying to get at your personal assets because you're liable for something else. Like let's suppose that, the, you know, that somebody is suing them because they also committed some kind of breach of a fiduciary duty or something like that. Um, it, this is what lawyers call piercing the corporate veil to try to go after someone's personal assets in order to get that as recompense. And in this case, the Baileys, the, like, this would be used as evidence to suggest that the savings and loans was not, in fact, the separate entity that should be considered separate from their own personal assets, but they treated it essentially the same as their own personal property. So that could be a serious problem for them. Yes. So let's talk about A Christmas Carol, and then we are done. So. <laughs> Bob Cratchit has a great OSHA complaint <laughs> because having a cold building and forcing people to work in there and not doing anything to make it habitable for humans is an OSHA violation. Well, Cratchit was forced to work in a cell behind a tank with only a single coal for a fire. Mr. Scrooge kept the coal box in his office and refuses to provide coal for the fire Huge OSHA violation. You don't get to do that. So Cratchit, you know, could really do a good OSHA complaint if this wasn't, you know, 1840s England. We've been taking questions as we go, but we will stick around because, you know, that's what we do. Here's all the places you can find social media. Yes. God, I love you. So yeah, that is a great uh, uh, yeah, so you're thinking like a lawyer. So the the issue of Clarence showing him a world where George had never been born, which is like, hey, why don't you stare at the sun with binoculars? It's uh it's not fun when he sees the horror, and you also understand why Jimmy Stewart got an Oscar for that role. Because when he's in the cemetery and he's standing over his brother's grave. And there's the line of, that's a lie. Harry Bailey went to war and saved the lives of every man in that transport. And Clarence's response was, every man on that transport died because Harry Bailey wasn't there to save him because you weren't there to save Harry. And why you get an Oscar? Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, but I would go that you're exceeding the uh, what we would confine to a courtroom. So when you have celestial beings deciding to go in and save you because people are praying because they're worried about you, some things exceed a courtroom. Well, it is a conceit that we often have at the Legal Geeks though, like could you ever bring a superhero in to face trial yeah. or something like that? Um, I, I think, I, I love your question um, and I wanna just add that I, I think that Possibly, and it's because, so in general, infliction of emotional distress, um, in, unless it is intentional, and so this is a, a little bit important, right, because Clarence does not intend to just inflict this emotional distress, um, is typically not on its own a cause of action. However, um, negligent infliction of emotional distress can factor into damages as long as there's some other, uh, oh, sorry, go ahead. There, there has to be a physical injury. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Some other thing. How I would, you could argue, though, you that by, bystander. 
Huh? You can't have the bystander. Yes. Emotional. But yeah, there does have to be a physical injury for intentional infliction of emotional distress or negligent infliction of emotional distress. Um, you could argue, though, that Clarence using his angel powers <laughs> um, to enter uh, uh, the mind uh, in this way, you, I, I think there is an argument uh, in which if our laws were adapted to that, in which that could be a form of assault. Yeah. Now, yeah. now, if Clarence had given him some sort of drug to induce this, that would be not only criminal, but civil, a civil suit as, as well. Right, in which case the infliction of emotional distress would potentially factor in to enhance damages. And in that case, you would have a physical injury. The ingestion of yep. the drug itself would be considered a physical injury. But that's not what happened. Yes, ma'am. Oh, and we also had a spy Spider Man at the back. Uh, but okay. go ahead. Uh, if you have a follow up question, though, you, you can start first. Oh, okay. Then Spider Man at the back first. <laughs> So, so yeah, we do have a human trafficking issue in Elf. So, so, so the question is, an Elf, Buddy the Elf, is in an orphanage and ends up in Santa's bag, and Santa doesn't return him. So, the, he needed to be adopted anyway. Like, there's a. Did Santa do the right paperwork? Did he uh, have in front of a judge? I mean, signed off on. There's gonna be hell to pay at the orphanage when you lose a kid. So. The fact that there is a baby at the orphanage and then Christmas morning there's not is highly problematic. Uh, we, good question. I think Santa's okay, but there are some. There's a paperwork issue that needs to be addressed, and hopefully the elves are good at that. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. So in, in California. Oh, that's a great um, The iron. Yeah. Uh, the nail. Yeah. So you defensive. The defensive property cannot have lethal force. So you can't have spring guns in your house, landmines, you know, a moat with alligators. You can't do that to defend your house. You can't create a trap. Yeah, I, I believe there's there's a there's a famous case that law students study, which is like a the oh, tear us off. Yeah, well, yeah, well, a pro yeah, a property owner the places a sign exactly and places a sign on it that says, you know, do not open this fence, you will be shot. And there is a trap in which there is a gun on the other side of that. Somebody opens it, gets shot. It's a, it's actually a law school. Case. It is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's a no no. So. Um, no, they're, no they're putting they're, ornaments out under the window. That's probably okay. Um, the, there's a. Yeah, Probably not no. a good idea. No. There's a great, I think it was a YouTube video or a book that had a doctor break down all the injuries. <laughs> yes. And that, that says like at what point they would have been killed. So, you know, like traumatic. hands alone would Yeah. It's, <laughs> so, yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. So, but this is the way we think. This is what we do. And apparently the way a lot of you guys think. So you that's know, great. <laughs> we're glad you're here on a on Black Friday at the first ever Fan Expo in San Francisco. Yes? I do want to say, in regards to the Rudolph thing, is Santa liable because he's not been given access to that information? Would Rudolph's parents actually buy this? Santa isn't informed of it until after several of the initial issues of it occurred. So he, I don't think Santa took corrective measures after becoming informed of the situation. 
So that that would well, be specifically under the ADA. I think you I think you are supposed to make a request in order to invoke the responsibility to provide a reasonable accommodation. So if we're talking about it under the ADA, assuming Rudolph hasn't no. made a request to please accommodate my special notes, um, I think you might be right. Um, if what we're talking about is as was discussed, like you know, uh, 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 constructive demotion and other things like that. Um, the employer does not necessarily have to be on explicit notice, um, and this is why it's like an objective standard. A reasonable person would have found these conditions to be intolerable. And just in case anyone's curious, like th this is a real, like the constructive demotion and, and termination is a real thing. It actually happens, um, unfortunately, a fair amount when uh, representing uh, 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 women who are hired for a certain job position, it has a certain job description, and then they are instead treated as a secretary or things like that. Um, I've actually represented a client um, in a case like that. Uh, and so that would be your quintessential sort of constructive demotion if an employer is helpful enough to have an actual job, just written job description, and then you're given a job that is objectively uh, considered either more, like you know in worse conditions or just less desirable, less uh, responsibility or things like that, you can certainly make that argument. And that would not require Rudolph to have gone to Santa beforehand and said, hey, <laughs> um, uh, I really think that I'm being treated very poorly, and so therefore you need to, to change my conditions. But Santa's treatment of the reindeer and the elves in terms of wage and hour laws, and that's that's an entire hour yeah. in <laughs> itself. <laughs> Depends on if they're inherently dangerous. So, so like if you have a defective toy that explodes. It depends on, I would argue it depends on the type of toy. But I think he could be part of the distribution chain if you have a defective toy and you're doing a products liability case. Yeah. Okay. It's part of the distribution chain. <laughs> if the big wheel blows up, okay, we're now in the realm of big wheels are blowing up. It's again. Ah! <laughs> and, uh, we think they go there themselves. So, so they run away and they're there. And in the end, Santa goes back and gets them and finds them homes. So I think if Santa knew, he would have taken corrective steps. But early. if Santa was their guardian, he has <laughs> now abandoned them. He has missing. It, that's, yeah, there, that's, are, there are child welfare statutes that would prohibit abandoning. Oh. Yeah, I think that, that's a really good point. Um, I, I just want to end with oh, we're running out of time. pulling the teeth out of the bumble's mouth is torture yes. and is practicing dentistry without a license. So with that, thank you all. Enjoy the rest of the show. Thank you guys. Those are really great questions. Yeah, you were best questions we've had in ages. Thank you.